Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal-making expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff. Great. We're live for 17 seconds. Great. Somebody took the controller that makes that shade go down. Nothing I can do there. But what I do want to do is introduce you to Doug Drysdale. This is an incredible person. This is the kind of interview you want to spend your time with, I believe, if you care about, oh, I don't know, things like money, growing a company, revenue, scaling up your business, and how deals are done. I love listening to podcasts where they have comedians and boxers and uh, you know guys who climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro and lost their arm and made it down safely. Very interesting. But when it comes to business, you need to know Doug, not the guy <laughs> who climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Doug, I'm going to bring you on since I'm talking about you. Welcome. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, good to be here uh, with you as well. And I might mention in my introduction, this is the Dealmaker podcast. I'm Oren Claff. This is Doug Drysdale, who's going to spend a few minutes with today. Um, Doug, I don't have enough time to read your entire interesting parts of your CV or bio. That could be a whole show. But this is why I wanted to have you here. You've been in the pharmaceutical for, you know, healthcare sector for 30 years. You've been uh, a CEO of multiple pharmaceutical or therapeutics companies. You've, you've had P&L responsibility for three, $400 million of revenue. Am I, is that fair to say? Yep. So, I mean, in terms of, and just to highlight for folks, this is the Dealmaker podcast. We have Doug Drysdale here who's had P&L responsibility for north of $400 million of revenue and is acting CEO of a company that's on the leading edge of their industry. So whether you're in, you know, accounting or Bitcoin or cyber or security or any kind of, and that tends to be who's here is guys who are on the leading edge of their industry. We got the guy. And so I have a million questions for you. Uh, is there anything like to, so, so we're here ostensibly to talk about the company you're managing now and whether you call it psychotropics or psychedelics or nootropics or um, mental health therapeutics, you'll guide us through that. But mental health therapeutics is clearly in addition to cybersecurity, cryptocurrency, space exploration, really on the leading edge of the things that are culturally important and scientifically relevant today. So I'm interested in three things, certainly mental therapeutics, the growth of a company and talking to a CEO or deal maker who has to raise money, uh, you know, constantly communicate to investors and raise money. So there's like a lot of important things going on here. Where would you like to start raising money, being on the leading edge of a cultural topic or actual execution of mental therapeutics maybe we start by the last with the last one let's talk about what we're actually doing today and yeah we we'll work backwards from there uh so what we're doing at cybin is is taking these classical psychedelic drugs that everyone has heard of lsd mdma psilocybin dmt and we're using chemistry and drug delivery technologies to completely transform them into safe and effective prescription pharmaceuticals that will be given under supervision to treat mental health disorders like depression, addiction, uh, and anxieties. What's, and, I know, and I know that the word psychedelics gets people excited, but for me, what's really exciting about these treatments is these aren't like the SSRIs, like the Prozacs that people have taken in the past to treat their depression. Uh, studies have shown that after one, just one or two doses of these treatments, Patients can be free of their depression or perhaps free of their addictive cravings for weeks or months at a time from just a couple of doses. So that's a completely transformational way to treat uh, mental health disorders that I think opens up a whole new uh, opportunity for uh, patients to change their behaviors and reset their lives. So really, really exciting. And, and potentially um, in my whole career, like you said, 30 years, 
this is probably the greatest opportunity I've had to change this many lives in such a meaningful way uh, in that time. So really powerful stuff that we're working with. So, so that's cool uh, and amazing. And the so so and the incidence of depression. Uh, I want to talk about you know and how I guess how big a problem is this and how fast is it changing. And then I also on the tail end of that, if you can hit uh, for those of us who don't have depression or haven't been diagnosed with it or have yet to have depression <laughs> and are just looking for ways to biohack, uh, take a look at whatever therapeutics are coming to the market and say, can that improve me for what I'm doing? Right. So if it helps them with depression, I guess, is it just depression specific? Right. Uh, like, like with steroids, Right. The steroids came and they found that uh, they, I think they, you know, a lot of them were originally invented for burn victims to help them regrow muscle, which was very hard to do. Right. And then the athletes said, well, if it can help a burn victim, watch what it can do for me. And then right. you had the steroid era. Yeah. Actually, what's pretty interesting about these these molecules is that they've been shown to be potentially beneficial in a wide range of mental health disorders. So depression, uh, anxiety disorders, PTSD. Uh, eating disorders, um, maybe even Alzheimer's people are looking at now because of the neurogeneration. And when you add those things together, uh, over 700 million people around the world are affected by some form of addiction, depression, or eating disorder. So that's that's an awful lot of people. I think when you add together the total addressable market that's being uh, targeted by psychedelics companies today, it's around $300 billion a year. So a really enormous unmet needs. Um, and the way that these molecules are thought to work is that they create a period of neuroplasticity in the brain temporarily. And what does that mean? It means new networks and new connections being formed in the brain <clears throat> where parts of the brain that don't usually speak to each other start talking, start communicating. This is that plasticity. And it's thought that this plasticity leaves the mind open to be more receptive to psychotherapy or to overcoming trauma or rethinking old behaviors. So hold, uh, hold like there, hold, hold that thought for a second. Some of the things that I read of the experiences of actually using some of the therapeutics and not necessarily your particular molecule, you know, down to your chemistry was that it allowed disintegration of connections that were uh, potentially faulty, right? And so synapses or pathways or conditions, you know, or depression were, had this sort of established pathway. And then the therapeutic allowed a disintegration or disconnection of that pathway and, and the uh, patient to be able to see new, sort of visualize or actually see new pathways and then find new connections. And then uh, I think the direction that you took was, you know, almost exactly the opposite. So, and, and uh, to be fair, you know, I'm getting my information from time magazine and popular culture and whatever I can find online and you're actually doing it. <laughs> how do we square, yeah. How do we square the circle of what it actually does? And I'm not going away. I'm just going to mess with the lights, but keep, keep going. I'll keep talking. No, we're actually saying the same thing. Uh, so Michael Pollan, uh, in his book, How to Change Your Mind, describes this in a very, very smart way. He talks about um, skiing down a hill. And when you ski down a hill multiple times, you create tracks in the snow. Yeah. And it's a bit like the way we live our lives. We form habits. And those habits are there for good reason. They, they mean we don't have to relearn something every time we do it. Uh, but those habits and behaviors aren't always good. Sometimes they're bad. And psychedelics create a new, fresh slope of snow. So you can create new tracks. Uh, but that happens because of that neuroplasticity, because of the ability of the, the mind to be opened up by, by these new connections talking to each other. At least that's what we believe today. We don't have the precise mechanism. But it certainly seems to be very powerful. And some studies, including one out of Johns Hopkins that was published last year in November, in patients with depression, 71% of patients had a clinically significant reduction in their depression, which is about four times the effect size that we see today with regular treatments like SSRI. So really promising uh, studies. So, 
and and so and and I think it's a topic you want to avoid. And we're probably going to get into a situation where I'm going to ask a question, you know, 19 different ways, like a criminal investigation, and you'll eventually say, you know, I deny the alligator and I deny the allegation. But uh, I, I'm trying to get a sense because it has been popularized on blogs in popular culture, uh, you know, in sports medicine and that kind of thing of the. Uh, of diff of effects, even if you're not depressive, of benefits um, for performance. You know, think of Bradley Cooper, Limitless. It's so, you know, again, in the steroid example, is this something that if you're not a burn victim, but you're just a normal athlete, and then you take the steroids, it doesn't return you to normal. It turns you to Bradley Cooper in Limitless. Yeah. It, can you, at least in the way that you can safely, uh, with the regulations, with the board, with the filings, with the being public, with all the issues that you have, can you at least address the popular culture, uh, limitless aspect of it? And then we can get back into the pure therapeutic. Sure. So we're talking about two slightly different things, two different levels of dosing. Uh, we're talking about larger doses, macro doses that have these profound effects. These almost they've been described as life changing uh, effects by some people. The Bradley Cooper example, limitless example, uh, is about microdosing. And typically that's thought to be around one-tenth of that larger dose. But most of the data so far is anecdotal. And it's anecdotal because no large studies have been done on these very small doses. And that's because it's very difficult. When you have very small effect sizes, how do you measure that? How do you measure an effect that's barely perceptible to, to, to someone? They may feel uh, like they have better cognitive function, but how do you actually measure that? So until those large studies are, are done, I think the jury is out on, on microdose. Well, how do you manage, how, how do you measure depression? You measure depression today uh, using various clinical scales that have been developed by physicians. They generate a 10-point questionnaire uh, that help um, determine where a person sits on a particular depression scale. And but to be fair, that's, you know, sort of like, you know, you're in the clinic and they go, um, how bad is the pain? You know, the sad face, the smiley face. And I'm like, um, no, it's the very sad face right there. Yeah. You're uh, absolutely but, right. Most of those yeah. scales are qualitative and not quantitative. And and so don't you have those same qualitative scales would apply on sort of peak performance? Yes, but it's very, very difficult with really small changes. What you need to detect small changes is I a see. really large sample size, so thousands and thousands of patients. And those, and those studies are very expensive and, and hard, harder to do. So maybe they'll get done at some point, but in a moment, the, the jury's out. So why your you know, molecule or approach or compound what are you guys providing as a company with the the substance um that's different you know a from the other guys who say we do the same things uh from the guys who wish we do the same things how do we differentiate between the announced treatments the folks jumping in and saying we're going to have a treatment and then the folks who are saying we like the standard treatments for clinical depression and this isn't a thing how do we navigate the minefield of what's real what's not and i guess how hard is this to do like why do we need doug drysdale 30-year veteran of healthcare, managed a 400 million dollar pnl you know why can't we get um you know mike jones and uh you know prajish and um you know, a bunch of kids from Y Combinator, you know, jumping in the space. And why can't they do it for $75,000? Like, help me navigate the minefield of how hard this is. Yeah, it is challenging. And, you know, the first thing, the first hurdle that you highlighted there is misinformation. There's been a ton of misinformation uh, because of the war on drugs back in the 60s and 70s. So that's certainly a stigma that we're all going to have to overcome. So you're not claiming there's misinformation on drugs on the Internet, are you? Okay, this is a serious show now. Okay, we don't want to make wild claims. Right, um, but on the other hand, we do know a lot about these molecules. Uh, they've been some of them were discovered decades ago, so we know a lot about the chemistry, their metabolism, the toxicology. So we know the good things, but we also know the bad things. And uh, there are some flaws with these. Some of these treatments are really long acting. So if you were to take, uh, say, MDMA in a clinic clinical setting. It might last for 10 hours. LSD might last for eight hours. Psilocybin, 
which is naturally occurring in mushrooms that we're using synthetically, may last for six hours if given orally. And if you think about how we treat, uh, how the infrastructure needed to treat those patients with those durations, that's really hard. You know, businesses that own depression clinics or addiction clinics can't have one patient in an entire room for a whole day. It's just not a good, good business model. Healthcare is a business after all. You have to have, have to be able to deliver care. So we're, we're modifying these molecules to make them faster acting, so fast onset and a shorter duration so that patients can be in and out in a more uh, reasonable time frame, maybe one to two hours, uh, and it's a more convenient, uh, but also bringing these treatments through clinical studies so that we show that they're safe and effective when given under supervision. And so talk to me about the, uh, assume we, we get the therapeutics approved and they're at market. And so how, how close are you to that? Yeah, clinical trials take, take several, several years. So we're probably three to five years away from, from seeing the first of these treatments on the market. And and so, and how off market are they? I mean, are you guys conducting tests? Like if I have uh, PTSD or depression, or I know somebody who has it, right? And this uh, And this is a very promising, widely discussed area of, you know, science that's percolating under the regular potential regulatory approvals, but I know it's there. I'm desirous of, of experimenting with it. I can literally, you know, on the black market or quasi black market, get into some kind of things that sound like this, you know, nootropics or, or, you know, as you said, LSD and microdosing and all kinds of stuff like this. It, it, while I'm waiting for the legitimate versions of these therapeutics to emerge from the you know, regulatory approvals, is there a way that we can get in with you guys for um, uh, you know, trials or testing or approved testing? Um, or are you know, all these guys, are, are we all just left sort of hunting around in the black, semi-black gray market for alternatives? Like what? Um, are there trials happening? There are trials happening. Uh, we've been approved to begin a phase two study for depression. There are other depression studies going on. There's a large PTSD study going on. So these trials are happening across the US and, and across Europe. And you know they, these studies are designed to show what the safe and efficacious doses of, the, of these treatments. And I wouldn't recommend people try this at home. And when, when we look at when we look at studies that have been done at academic institutions like NYU and like Johns Hopkins, we see uh, we see positive results, but we also see a lot of variability uh, between different doses and, and different different patient times. And when you look at something like uh, mushrooms, naturally occurring uh, substances, the there are two hundred different species. Yeah. So you don't know how much psilocybin is in that mushroom, how much to take. Uh, you know, and how much you're getting or what, what other um, molecules, what other substances might be in there as well, might be good for you or, or, or bad for you. So I would say that until we get through these these uh, studies, uh, that uh, people, people have to wait and, and be patient. But there are studies being recruited for uh, that patients that uh, are suffering from these conditions could try to get into. Uh, so... And and just for people who are maybe watching this and, you know, excited to learn more, where would you send them that would be better than, you know, the first page of Google, you know, given that you're way inside this wormhole, you know, where, where would somebody find better than front page of Google information? Yeah, so if you want to find what clinical studies are being run anywhere, pretty much, um, then clinicaltrials.gov has uh, a list of, you could search by the molecule you could search by psychedelics most likely and you'll find uh, details of, of what studies are being run around the, around the world and also many institutions like mass general ucsf um johns hopkins nyu all have centers now focused on psychedelic research and so people could reach out to those institutions as well he, and the you know, um, I don't want to get you fired or anything, but, um, just, you know, you could just walk down to the lab and, uh, but so have you tried these? What's the, you know, um, are there internal trials? You know, is it safe enough that, you know, you can try it internally? Uh, and have you tried it? And so what gives you confidence because it is, it's qualitative, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, because the effects are qualitative. So if you think of, uh, you know, I recently had surgery 
And in order to get you down for surgery, you know, clearly they give you fentanyl, right? Uh, and uh, I'll tell you how that's not qualitative. You know, I had a question that I wanted to ask the anesthesiologist and uh, I was like a second too late as I started, you know, and he hit the plunger <laughs> and then I started asking my question and, I, and then my hand drops and uh, I'm out. Right. And then they're measuring, you know, your blood oxygen level and your whatever it is, the anesthesiologist and the assistants, you know, hopefully are measuring and not playing Tetris, um, mm -hmm. you know, or, or Candy Crush on their phone. And they're watching over this. And it's very quantitative medicine. And this is qualitative medicine. Uh, I, and yeah, I wouldn't put it quite that way. I okay. would say that there have been uh, hundreds of academic studies that have been run on these molecules. And, and when you add all that data together in a kind of meta-analysis, you can see really strong trends of, of efficacy. You take some of the individual studies, and they're quite small. It's so maybe yeah. 25 or 30 patients at a time. So what we've got to do is not necessarily go from qualitative to quantitative, but going from indicative to proven. And, and you do that by scaling up into studies uh, that contain hundreds of patients. And then across an average of hundreds of patients, if you, if you see a, a strong trend, a statistically significant trend in changes in, in, in depression or addictive behavior, then you know you've got something that works. So those studies are not, but those studies are not only designed to show uh, the efficacy, they're also designed to prove the safety. What's the right dose and the dose frequency that people should be taking. So I would encourage people to to, uh, to wait for the, those results, which are, are not that far away. We're making really strong progress. Yeah. Just the Cybin this year, we've run 60 preclinical studies. So these are studies before wow. getting into man. And uh, that's, that tells us a heck of a lot about these molecules. So we, we, we have to put that package together for FDA before they allow us even to start dosing uh, patients. So it's a pretty rigorous process. So how hard is it to manufacture? Like how scarce is it? So you, you'll come out with it. There's huge demand. Uh, you know, are we like the semiconductors needed to manufacture Ford Raptors where, you know, everybody wants it, but you just have limited ability to manufacture. Uh, you know, once you, once you have your patents in place and your approvals in place, you know, how hard is this stuff to make and distribute and control? Yeah, I don't think these are particularly hard to manufacture. Uh, we've been synthesizing multiple products. We've got about 50 different products in, in, our, in our library today. So we could, there certainly won't be an issue with scaling the manufacturing. You know, our goal is to make sure that these treatments are economically viable. So that the shorter acting and faster acting means that the treatments are more likely to get reimbursed. And I think that's the hurdle. Getting reimbursement is what's key. I think that's the single greatest way to get mass uh, accessibility. I, this was my next question, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was afraid you were going to, you know, like the uh, the priest in uh, The Exorcist. The power of our Christ compels you. Ah, do not, you know, don't ask these questions about reimbursement. Every healthcare fundamental change in patient life quality, a perfect example, genetics, right? A genetic test can be an amazing revelation of what molecules you are sensitive to, um, what you can absorb from warfarin to caffeine to lung cancer drugs, and it can, uh, to opiates. So if you're injured and you're required to, uh, you know, have some kind of opiate in order to manage your injury, you know, a genetic test in terms of what opiates you can uh, um, um, assimilate, absorb, and at what levels, there's 238 opiates, right? And it can help a physician just hone in on the 10 or 12 without having to take you all the way through, you know, Percocet and fentanyl and um, the, the, you know, the full range of opiates to find one that you can tolerate, one that is sustainable, one that doesn't leave you drooling all day and leaves you functional, but also manages your pain. Like uh, only a genetic test can help find that kind of solution quickly. Uh, but getting reimbursement for genetic tests is a complete nightmare. So reimbursement is always the issue with these uh, therapeutics that can just ch functionally change the life of somebody who's limited, um, you know, as you would say, with depression or PTSD or something like that. Do you have any early signs on where reimbursement is going to come in from the mainstream healthcare, both government and and private? 
Yeah, so when we talk to payers and payer provider models, which are essentially groups that have both the doctors and the insurance, they're really excited about this. When you think about the way we treat depression today, um, we, we use molecules, treatments called SSRIs, like Prozac, and there are about a half a dozen or so of these. And when you track back um, meta-analysis on these treatments over decades, it's clear that for the bulk of patients, maybe two-thirds of patients, those treatments for mild to moderate depressions are really not much better than placebo. So it's spending all this money treating people and it's not really working. So that's the most expensive treatment, right? One that doesn't, doesn't work. When we talk to payers about these treatments and the ability to give people uh, a space, a freedom from symptoms for weeks or months at a time, they get very excited. One, it's not chronic treatment because then you don't have to worry about the patients taking the pill. Two, the, to be able, the ability to remove those symptoms improves the patient's person's productivity. Uh, they, it removes associated comorbidities. People that are depressed often have other things going on, like anxiety, or uh, they have substance use disorders. And so the, we, we are, we're looking like we're going to spend something like $30 trillion a year by the year 2030 on mental health disorders globally. When you look at all the associated uh, direct and indirect costs. <clears throat> Can you just go back, that back to the U.S.? Because I hear those global numbers all the time, right? And global is a big place because it includes um, China and Africa. But, uh, but, you know, we only have an $18 trillion, $19 trillion GDP ourselves. But if you just yeah. look domestic U.S., yeah, so that's, that's, a projection. that's a projection. So right now we spend in the U.S. about $2.5 trillion annually on uh, in direct and indirect costs of uh, mental health disorders. That includes lost productivity and, and, and other things. But it's a, so it's a huge impact. Yeah. So so the the payors want to pay. Is that fair? Is that what I'm hearing you say in your early? I, I think they'll pay for the right products, you know, for the right profiles. And uh, we're looking to generate you know, pharmacoeconomic data to support those as well. So we're very optimistic. And, and so just to com com continue plumbing this, is it functionally, as I read, you know, in the Time Magazine article, which everybody's familiar with, that not only is there the therapeutic that you have to take, but you also need to have a skilled clinician or clinicians alongside you to manage the uh, sort of the mental con condition of going in and coming out. Um, so like Advil, right? Uh, I have a bad workout. I pull. Um, I get inflammation. I take some Advil. I don't have a clinician, you know, guiding me in and guiding me out of the Advil experience. How um, how accurate is that in the article that there needs to be some guidance? And then as the um, the molecule gets better and better, do you see that continuing or going away? Well, walk us through uh, the you know the neophytes here. We're super interested in this, like what the whole experience is, you know, and like in venture capital, we would call the whole product because you have a feature, but then you have the whole product that makes the feature work. The, the Microsoft Word doesn't work without the internet and and being able to convert to PDF. It's the whole product around the molecule. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. So when we look at studies uh, with these treatments, as I said, there've been hundreds of them over the last several decades. Those studies that had zero psychotherapy uh, associated with them uh, or, or much reduced psychotherapy were less impressive. The results were le le less powerful. Uh, so it's it's thought that uh, what these treatments do, this neuroplasticity, opens the mind to be more receptive to that psychotherapy. But it, we're only talking a few sessions. In our model, it's three sessions before or three sessions after the, the treatment. So you're not going to cure someone of anything in just a few sessions. But what that psychotherapy does, it, it it sets expectations for the patient. It helps them understand that, that, and, the, and the therapist that the goals that they want to achieve from their treatment and so that they know what to expect. The, some, of these, some of these sessions can be quite powerful and people are uh, addressing the underlying trauma behind their depression or their addiction or some life event that damaged them in the past and they have to face that during these sessions. They can be quite powerful uh, and maybe even traumatic. Um, but so to have the patient really well uh, set up and having right expectations and having someone observing during the treatment session uh, just means that these treatments are then safe in that, in that supervised environment.
Yeah. Uh, and, can yeah. I, I just want to comment on that for, by the way, uh, normally, and unfortunately in my mind, like, you know, seven to 10 jokes come up on every single one of these topics, but because this is serious and it's depression, I am restraining myself enormously. But if you want to come back and talk about, you know, semiconductors or something like that, I'll be all over you. But this is an important, this would be an important topic. And I am, you know, restraining myself because it does lend itself to a lighter. I'm trying to stay on this quite seriously. Uh, so for those of you uh, who are listening in, I think what I'm trying to say and what I read and what I hear Doug saying is the maximum impact can happen when you do have uh, a, a trained, you know, clinician or whatever, therapist or whatever you want to call it, helping with the experience. The reason is because when you, when the, um, the treatment works, and you start having access to areas that were shut off earlier, uh, trauma, and all of us have had trauma, some, you know, to a greater degree or less, uh, unmanaged release of trauma can be as or more damaging than um, the suppression of the trauma. So the cure can be worse than the disease in terms of depression. So the reason I have limited insight on this is uh, my mom's a clinical therapist and she's a practitioner of EMDR. And EMDR is a light, uh, is a, is a eye movement therapy that if you, and it sounds fantastical and you know, my background is engineering. I've talked about this before when somebody comes and says to me, Hey, you can move your eyes in a certain pattern and that will release some emotional uh, pathways in the brain that you otherwise couldn't very difficult to access. But it is a, you know, it's, it's, uh, trained and taught at Harvard and Yale and, and, you know, MIT and in true academia is this light movement, uh, eye movement therapy, which does release trauma and taking that back to, you know, my family is that if you don't have somebody there who knows what they're doing, when you enter the experience of reliving or being being highly connected to long ago trauma, uh, you can get yourself in real trouble. Is this fair? And is, is these things that you're have? Um, I'm interested because you're a therapeutics company, right? And then how do you then manage the therapy side of this? Because most drugs, you know, again, Advil doesn't have a therapy yeah. component. I'm just super interested. And how you validate that side of it, how you, it's just an amazing, interesting area of, of futuristic science where we have the therapeutic, but you also need, I mean, it's Star Treconian, right? I don't think there's other sort of, you know, equivalents of um, that, that you need mental guidance for a therapy. You're right. This is new, and uh, it's something that's something that we've worked very hard on. So we've created a novel psychotherapy platform called Embark. It's a six-domain set of best practices, taking practices that exist today, putting them together in a consistent way, that enable us to consistently train therapists and then consistently apply that therapy in clinical studies. The last thing we want is for the psychotherapy therapy to become a variable. In, in the in those studies, so getting that consistent uh, is important, and and we'll have to test this through clinical studies. Um, like I said, we're not trying to we're not trying to cure a patient with psychotherapy in just a handful of sessions. It's really setting the patient up for their treatment, guiding them and observing them through the treatment, and then as importantly, after the treatment, there's a three set of three integration sessions, quite quickly after treatment, where patients can reflect on what they saw and what they learned, what they what they heard or what they said to themselves in that session and integrate that back into their lives <clears throat> and into their, their, their psychotherapy. Is there a model for that? Like this is, to, uh, um, is there a model for it? Cause I mean, most like, uh, so fentanyl, right? Fentanyl you take not on your own. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> I mean, probably not on your own, you know, for those of you with fentanyl, right. Uh, you should not be taking that on your own, but, uh, that is a systemic medication. I'm just trying to think, is there any model for this in which you are, I mean, the current, um, uh, antidepressant drugs, do they model themselves in the same way that, 
my understanding of them, not experience, but understanding of them is that they're sort of assigned to you and you take them and the benefits percolate through you like an Advil. But is there a model that you're chasing for no, this? That's, that's true. But it's also yeah. been shown that if you uh, combine psychotherapy with SSRIs, then yeah. better outcome. You, if you apply psychotherapy with, say, ketamine therapy for depression, it has a better outcome. Uh, so there, there is there is precedent uh, for this. Um, but given the nature of these treatments where patients are, in, to some degree, a little out of control, uh, and they don't, so they don't want to be left alone in a room, uh, having this sort of set and setting and integration afterwards just creates a safe framework. As I said, it's not trying to cure the patient with psychotherapy in a half a dozen uh, sessions. It's really creating a safe framework for the delivery of these powerful uh, medications. And have the producers of Black Mirror contacted you? <laughs> I do like that. Show. To direct an episode. Uh, I have some questions about money to watch the time. Uh, I have some questions about money and, uh, and deal making, but I'm very interested from here from you, your perspective, because I think you're in a very unique situation to have a long view into the future. So this, I mean, you've been doing this for seven, seven years, no longer, 12 years. Yeah. A dozen years of CEO. Yeah, sure. And yeah. A dozen years. Many yeah. years of M&A before that. Right. So the, 10 years ago, this was a bit of a long view getting to where you are now, but look out in the future, 15 years, what's the art of the possible? for the mass population in this area of therapy? What's the science fiction that we as, as you know, laymen aren't able to see what, what's possible in the future, even though you don't have your hands around it now, like, you know, excite us about mm -hmm. where the world our kids are going to live in other than, you know, choking on heat and smog and speaking Chinese um, and, you know, living in a, um, authoritarian uh, uh, government and actually the movie Red Dawn coming to fruition, you know, but other than that future, like what, what do you have another future that our kids might be living in? Yeah, I think so. So we have a really exciting partnership with a company called Colonel uh, out of the West Coast. This is Brian Johnson's company. And Brian and his team have uh, developed a wearable neuroimaging device. So they've taken... Yeah. Take an existing neuroimaging technology, uh, functional neuroinfrared spectroscopy, and they've turned it, in, instead of using wave light, they've turned it into pulse light. And this helmet has full head coverage, pulses light into the cranium 200 times a second. And from that, we can see real live, real time brain activity at any point across, across the head. And we are just about to kick off uh, a study using ketamine uh, because it's an approved molecule. Uh, to give us an idea of what we might see in a sort of semi-psychedelic experience with patients uh, taking taking ketamine. So we're hoping that we'll be able to see that real-time brain activity during a psychedelic session, and then, of course, later uh, with our own molecules. But it might be that because of our ability to get access uh, to this uh, on, a, on a much broader scale, that we can collect a lot more data. So up until today, you can only really collect this kind of data under fMRI. And if you know what an fMRI machine looks like, it's a big sure. metal tube with a big 120 decibels clanging around your head. Imagine taking a psychedelic drug being in there. <laughs> Not particularly pleasant. But if we can collect a lot of data through, through this uh, kernel flow device, then we might be able to see what this neuroplasticity looks like. We may be able to see how long it lasts after treatment. Does it persist for some period of time? We might be able to see uh, areas of the brain that light up with different molecules. It might help us create more targeted molecules. It may even help us create treatments that have this neuroplastic effect without the psychedelic effect, if that's even possible, we will, we will see. But it's moving from that qualitative measure, those depression scales. So I think what you're, you're describing then is uh, what was documented very scientifically in the recent documentary, Limitless. <laughs> it is it is hopefully, hopefully we can turn qualitative scales into real data and yeah uh, that would be pretty amazing no one's ever done it before um and we should hopefully have the first look at that before the end of this year so it's not going to be an argument of you know what are you doing tracking my phone data it's be 
15 years, what are you doing with my brain data? If I contribute. Yeah. yeah. Well, with devices like this and with uh, uh, brain interfaces, brain computer interfaces that we're seeing, it's going to happen, isn't it? At some point. So, all right. Um, like I just have having trouble processing the future through your lens because it feels like data from your brain will be available for processing and understanding what neural pathways you could manipulate yourself in order to impose limitations or free limitations on yourself to turn yourself into some kind of fucking impossible to deal with superhuman. And it's like Instagram. Here's what I hear you saying. Instagram is just going to be people. Like instead of looking at their perfect lives on Instagram, you're just going to be looking at perfect people who, you know, who have been able to manipulate on like, you know, like do on, on Instagram, a photo, they've been able to actually manipulate the neuroplasticity in both positive and negatives areas in their brain and life. And the people who go to all that effort are just going to be Instagram fucking nightmares in the real world. Is that scientifically accurate? Oh, that, that's an awfully terrible, cynical way to look at things. I think the better way to look at it is to say we've got 700 million people around the world suffering from depression, okay. addiction, or eating disorders. And if we can use large amounts of data to help large amounts of people with prescription treatments, bear in mind, we're not going to be you know, handing these out like candy, then that's, you know, using that massive data could be really powerful to help all those people. Things aren't getting any better from a mental health landscape. You know, every measure of mental health has gotten worse during the pandemic. Wow. Uh, depression, substance use disorders. It's okay, you can uh, say it is because of Instagram. You can blame them. But, <laughs> no, but what, I mean, why is, so is mental health, <laughs> is it easier to measure? Are we more aware of it? Or is there more incidents? Because if you think back, to the year of our Lord, 1412, which was a fucking horrible time to be, you know, not a king, right? Because, you know, even, even if you were a king, you didn't live as well as somebody who's on welfare in Baltimore today in those times. So why weren't every single person who, you know, um, you know if they got a toothache, you know, or a, or a root canal, they were, you know, very likely just to die from it where there wasn't as simple medications as something to relieve a headache where life was traumatic and miserable and, and every indignity and, um, uh, you know, inability to enjoy life existed yet people, you know, if you read material from that time, I mean, why wasn't everybody in constant depression then? And so since we have so much now, why is depression more prevalent? How do you square those ideas of, you know, the ancient times where things really were miserable? I mean, if you think about early 1200 Europe, uh, right? I mean, this, this uh, you know, and living in the cold and the damp and the dank and the uh, social hierarchies and just the misery of just hard scrabble living in those days i think our worlds back then were really really small people knew very few other people their social network was physical and very very small if they did something embarrassing or made a mistake very few people knew about it and it wasn't communicated and perpetuated over and over again today our worlds are massive if elon musk says one word he said psychedelics the other day yeah millions and millions of people <laughs> immediately know if he smokes weed on, on on camera millions and millions of people know if we make a mistake or we do something embarrassing it follows us around it never goes away and so i think that's that's the problem that, that in that uh, so the depression is not necessarily i think what i hear you know you saying it's not necessarily from the hardship and this is super interesting it's not necessarily from physical hardship it's not necessarily from food um you know having to scrabble for food or food quality uh it the mental issues come from social relationships and social hierarchies. And when those things are out of phase from how we evolved as a species, then you get these kinds of problems. 
I think they're big contributors, especially amongst uh, teenagers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and so okay, but let let me ask the question then, cold without the prompts. What is causing the increase in incidence of depression uh, in the way that you guys look at it as a company? Well, all of those things I mentioned certainly contribute, um, but we've seen an increase during the pandemic, uh, not only of mental health disorders, and it's not really a surprise when people are cooped up in their homes in small in small environments, you know, uh, without maybe with uh, social economic pressures as well. But we've also seen that look on the positive side an increased awareness of mental health disorders during the pandemic. We've seen uh, people more willing to talk about their mental health disorders, more willing to say that they had a depression or they had an addiction at some point in, in, in the past. More and more celebrities are willing to say that, more and more people, people are willing to say that without there being as much of a stigma. We're not quite fully there yet, but without there being as much of a stigma as there used to be. And that's fantastic. And you combine that with the willingness to maybe try new things because now we're more open to talking about it. And they may, maybe we'll actually make real progress. In, hey, in the- I, Doug, you're baiting the shit out of me. I am not going to admit here on a broadcast that I am, you know, I know you're picking up on it. That's why you've asked me a few times, but I'm not going to admit it in public uh, that I'm depressed. But um, what should we do in all seriousness if we pick up, you know, we've got a coworker or a friend or a family, family member, and just we're picking up clear signals that something isn't right with their mental state. Just, I know you, you, by the way, I understand you're not a 911 helpline. You know, my friend is going to, but since you're in this industry and people are listening uh, and I want to take it back to the positive side, uh, you know, the dark side is just more interesting, more views. Sorry, Doug. Um, What's in in your mind through your lens of wanting to help through the making these therapeutics and these therapies available but when somebody picks up an easy signal that somebody's having a problem, where should they, uh, how, where? I'm just not familiar with the topic. I'm just. Yeah. And, and, and Oren, to be fair, I'm not, I'm not a mental health professional. Uh, yeah. But of course, from my real life experience, uh, we've all had friends or family members that have gone through hard times. Um, even for, uh, recently, I had a friend really go through something very, very troubling and, I uh, was on the verge of doing something, you know, quite, uh, quite bad. And it, I think it's really just, is this, is this a friend or is it a friend? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. My friend called snug. No, um, <laughs> but no, he, he uh, you know, I think it's just about being there and listening. And, and of course yeah. You really feel that, uh, that, that, that someone uh, is going to um, hurt themselves and you know, reach out to, you know, to, to professionals to, to help them. But, you know, we are in a weird way um, to come back to the social media and, and, and really, really just technology. We're all connected, but so disconnected. And I think we've lost the lost the kind of the habit of reaching, just reaching out to people. And especially in the last couple of years, I think that's been part of the problem. Like we've we've embraced these technologies, we use them for work, we've made it functionally work. But recently, as we've started to get back together physically with people, you realize that most of the conversations we have on these platforms are not very deep and not very real. Um, you can't really brainstorm and bounce around ideas and interact as naturally as you might do. And that goes for both professional interactions and personal ones. So uh, there's no real replacement for that you know, personal interaction and, and just being there for people that you care about. So thank you for saying that. I think as you know, since we're talking about this topic, that's an important message to deliver. Now, Back to money. <laughs> so how hard how hard has it been, you know, over the last couple of years when uh, capital has been flowing quite f- freely to raise money? So on one hand, you have the advantage of something that's novel and at the leading edge of technology and medical science. On the other hand, it's very long cycle, uh, you know, in which there's approval risks and there's, uh, you know, legions of dead bodies along the way to the summit. Uh, And so how hard from your perspective for a project like this, is it to raise capital? Yeah. So that's, that's a really good uh, question. And, you know, you've got to recognize that a lot of companies that started up in this space in the last couple of years, didn't really have a pharmaceutical background. Yeah. Fortunately, our team has decades of experience. So we know what the journey looks like. We know that it's hard. 
we know that there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around psychedelics right now, but there will be ups and downs as we go through this journey, us and other companies too. So we really targeted, as we were reaching out for investment, we really, really targeted blue chip biotech funds <clears throat> that understand the journey that are in yeah. the long term. They're not expecting you know, a, a quick return tomorrow. It's about that long, longer journey. They understand the risk and they do their due diligence. Uh, so I'd say that in the five financing rounds that we've been through, um, 90 to 95% of those funds came from US blue chip biotech funds. Amazing. And, really and, and is that largely because of you and the team? And, it is absolutely because of yeah. the team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so for people listening in, I, I mean, this is something that's so critical to understand. Is it because we'll have people come to us all the time and say, "Hey, there, we have a, just use software for example, easier to understand. You know, we have a better software. It does more. We have more customers. We're growing faster." And these knuckleheads over here, um, our competitors, have raised $80 million. And we can't raise $2 million, right? And it's just a giant, confusing mess for them to understand why they're outperforming the other guys and the guys are raising all the money. It's the team. It absolutely is. So I'd, I'd always say if I was investing in something, I'd invest in an A team with a B idea versus a B team with an A idea. Um, so that's the first thing. So in a couple of startups that I've, I've grown, it's really been about those first few hires, the first five people, super critical. And uh, a lot of, I think a lot of startups are cheap and they, they want to save their money and spend as little as possible. But I think that's wrong. You want to get the best possible people you can, especially. Doug, this startup. is not really a show where you criticize us. Like we're interviewing you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you mind? Can okay. I just ask, ask questions? <laughs> I'm sure you're doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and how much how much capital uh, in total have you raised? Well, we've raised 120 million dollars so far, Canadian. Yeah, and and so then, how much more capital is it going to take to complete the journey? If you you know project out in your uh, pro forma, you know, and um, your pro forma is pretty easy because it's mainly on the cost side for you know quite a while, and then the revenue just goes. Poof. Yeah, depending on depending on the molecule and and the program and the disease area, it can vary. But somewhere between fifty and a hundred million dollars per uh, fully approved molecule is not out of the ordinary. Uh, but but as time goes by and, and, you, and you reach different um, development milestones, and more value is is created. Uh, we've seen we're, we're at around four or five hundred million dollar market cap today, and we have peers in our space that have added at two billion dollars. So you know, there's a long way to go as you generate data and you, and you demonstrate proof of concepts. But it is a journey, and I think investors understand that. So you're you're that guy going, we have a better molecule, uh, we're working faster, we have better results, and those motherfuckers have a $2 billion valuation. What? No, um, I understand that they're um, – and, and I think a lot of it at that level can be how big of a plan you're promoting. Right. So you want a bigger valuation, promote a bigger plan. The problem is the flame that burns the brightest burns the shortest. It, it's a balance. Yeah. So absolutely communicate, communicate, communicate what you're doing and what you plan to do. I think that helps not only with investors, but with credibility, with funding, it helps with employees. So, yeah, definitely communicate. Um, but I think slow and steady is good. Slow and steady. You want to gradually increase your valuation climb up in a stepwise fashion because anything that goes up fast comes down fast. The, the, yeah. The Icarus effect. I mean, I just want to talk about you for a minute. You can just listen in uh, and get a third party. I mean, it is just such a treat you guys for me and everybody to be able to have access and talk to Doug here. I mean, th this, this is, I guess when you hear interviews with, actors and athletes and uh flamethrowing entrepreneurs you know got a billion dollar valuation for a unicorn i mean those are the medium article yahoo article front page articles but those are the flame that burns the brightest burns the shorts you can't see what's happening under all that excitement i mean just seeing doug this is imagine he's gonna raise a quarter billion dollars deploy it over a period you know that looks like 10 years more than it looks like 
five years and manage that money, report results, work with the behind the scenes on that long tail with the best investors in the world and, and, and day to day come up with a choice that, you know, he could double the valuation of his company with a couple words and he has to make that decision. Do I want to uh, uh, show off to my wife and to my, to the accountants and to more importantly, the board of directors and investors that we have a billion dollar valuation. Doug and I could put a plan together tomorrow to get that valuation. But then where's the integrity? Where are the values? How would we live up to that plan and make that true? Uh, and, and so to meet somebody who's going to take a quarter billion dollars, deploy it inside the healthcare responsibly, uh, um, uh, you know, with, with the highest values for trying to get patient outcomes for a population that is underserved today by the treatments that are available and work with some of the best investors in the world. Like this is a window into the real world of business. You get out of all those uh, TechCrunch style articles and look at someone like Doug, who's managing a real business, a real solution, uh, and, and developing something that's going to be around for 50 years at the lead. And today is at the leading edge of science. It's just such a treat to see what you're doing, have you unpack a few of these issues and understand your motivation and how you're doing these things. It's just, it's just a total, um, experience to be able to get a window into how you're approaching the business. So I'm really appreciate you doing that thank you it's been it's been a pleasure thank yeah, you yeah for sure so uh for for people who want to get more involved with the company you know where should they go and you know what they what should they look at as a you know a decision to either buy the stock or support the company by doing articles or get involved with a trial like how where can we send people from here to get them super excited about you know, the company and, and taking the next step to being involved, even if it's just as being an owner. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, the company's website is cybin.com, C-Y-B-I-N.com. We're traded on the Neo Exchange in Canada and the NYSE American under the symbol C-Y-B-N. <clears throat> and if you want to uh, take a look at uh, what analysts think about us, we have eight analysts covering us today. They can give you a really depth uh, view of uh, their take on the stock and the story and and, uh, and the journey ahead. Uh, that's that's amazing. Okay, well, uh, this by the way, this has been the Dealmaker show. I've had Doug Drysdale here from Cybin, and I definitely recommend going deeper into the company. The show's over, but we're going to keep going because I have another couple questions for you quickly. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Hey, call right. your wife. Call your wife and say, uh, I'm going to be late for dinner. I'm talking to this guy. And, man, he has a lot of questions. But the Neo Exchange, is that you know, separate from the company? But we're very interested in new kinds of exchanges. How is your experience? How did you decide to get on the Neo Exchange? Uh, and what is yeah. your experience being? And what kind of companies would you recommend follow you in? Yes, yeah, so we're a Canadian company. We're headquartered in Toronto. Um, and the NEO is a tier one exchange, so a higher level of governance, uh, which we we wanted to pursue that because we knew we, we wanted to go to the US after. <clears throat> they, um, they're you know, very forward thinking, a really supportive team of people over there, and they want to attract cutting edge tech uh, leading leading edge companies. Uh, so I would definitely recommend the NEO as, as a way to start if you're Canadian. And uh, but we always knew we wanted to come over to the to the US, and so we listed in August on the NYSE American. Uh, great validation of the business model uh, by that by that group, and we've seen liquidity uh, increase I don't know four times uh, since we came over to, to that. And you know, I mentioned that we had a really large institutional base uh, previously, and now we've been able to get access to a more of a retail mix uh, in the base as well, which is which has been great. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Doug. I really appreciate. Um, hopefully, you know, we take a, a hour or two out of your time and then reduce the amount of time that the product gets to market, you know, by a couple hours. Um, and because uh, this is an important product. So thank you for taking your time. Send you back to work in the bowels of the coal mine of healthcare science. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Thank you for sharing everything that you did today. And it's my pleasure. Thanks, Arn. I'll see you next time. See you next time. Take care.
If you're planning to become a dealmaker at this level, make sure to join the daily dealmaker. We get into one little piece of this daily. And so you're just stacking and stacking and stacking these tools and tactics and strategies until they come out of you as naturally as they come out of me and the people that I work with. Add the tips, tools, strategies, tactics a little bit every day. And by the end of a year, you'll be a totally different, new, improved person and a very strong deal maker. Hey, thanks for listening. And be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclass.com slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.